You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Samuel Moyne, who is a professor of law and history at Yale University, also the author of a number of books, a couple of which I have with me, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Human Rights and the Uses of History, a couple other books on human rights, Christian Human Rights, a book called Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and then some more recent books, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, which is coming out soon, another book called Humane, How the U.S. Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Now, you're, I think, probably the leading historian of human rights, or at least of this concept or term human rights. And one of the points that you make, which I found fascinating, is a more general point about how we tend to reinvent our histories, right? And how we sometimes pretend like concepts which are relatively new are in fact ancient. And so you described the typical historian of human rights as like a church historian, right? Because the church historians would look at everything that happened before Christianity as sort of the origins of Christianity or prophesying Christianity. And then anything that is related to the progress of Christianity is seen as inevitable, and anything which is impeding it is seen as just a mere obstacle to be stepped over. And so we can talk a bit about sort of why it is that we tend to do this, right, reinvent our history. But, you know, more importantly, I mean, this concept of human rights, where did it start? There's a couple breaking points. You talk about the 1940s with the UN Declaration. I think you really hone in on kind of the 1970s as being sort of a, there's a discontinuity where the way in which we currently think about human rights was really birthed. So what is the relationship between these older concepts of natural rights, which we all think started in, you know, around the time of the French and American revolutions and this newer concept of human rights? So, you know, it's so common that even in our own lives, we engage in what, since I published that book all those years ago, has been termed retconning, retroactive continuity. And you've ended up someplace and somewhere and some person and you think you it was always meant to be. And of course, that's not true. A lot of accidents happen and you made big recent choices and you want to see yourself as consistent. I think all of us do, even kind of at a collective level. So when it comes to human rights, there's no doubt that the kind of very abstract concept is old. No one could deny that, even going back maybe to the Middle Ages. So maybe there was a theologian or two who said, every human being has a right based on just being human. But my big theory was that in the age of the American Revolution and the French Revolution, one based on natural rights language and the other one based on something close to human rights language, the agenda was different. Let's call that human rights 1.0. Like these were people who engaged in revolution. They were for out for their own good locally. They said there are these abstract principles that justify what we're doing. Of course, the other side said they were terrorists and tried to put them down. And so what struck me is that this is different because these people are for their own good. They're building a state. They're using violence if push comes to shove. And that's just a world away from what many people at least have begun to mean by human rights. Let's call that human rights 2.0 more recently, which is more about people far away. States are the problem, not the solution. And we want to somehow discipline states. And then we might support a nonviolent revolution now and again. But we really think hope is to be found in like, naming and shaming and filing lawsuits and sending monies to NGOs. And that's just, it's just a different thing. So the concept could be the same, but there was some big system update. And I emphasize that, that I felt that happened in the 1970s, so not that long ago. Well, the title of your book, The Last Utopia, it's a bit tongue in cheek because I think part of your argument is that 
human rights the way we understand it, I mean, it kind of lacks something. It's missing some element that most other visions of the just world have, right? It's almost like an anti-utopia. It's based on morality rather than on some political project. And so, I mean, can human rights serve as the foundation for some new type of utopian project? I mean, do we want to have a utopian project? I mean, I think part of the reason why it emerged is because these other utopian projects, as you argue, like communism, like nationalism, I mean, they were found wanting. They were found to have problems. So is there something about a utopian project that's necessary in order to get us the kind of society that we're looking for? Or is it sufficient to simply have this morality-based ideology? Yeah, I think people can agree to disagree on that. I think I look out at the world and it seems like we have either utopia or dystopia. And when all our fictions, we have nightmare and post-apocalyptic scenarios, which maybe those are old, but they're just so ubiquitous now. And climate change and what people call threats to democracy. And it seems like I would prefer to think that we need to go big in the direction of calling for a better world beyond these nightmares. I want to clarify that when I used the notion of human rights as just appealing to morality, that was like what they said in the 1970s for various understandable strategic reasons. Like they were scared of utopias, which were supposed to um, themselves bring nightmare in their wake. Or if they were in Eastern Europe or Latin America, where there were new dissidents associated with human rights, they didn't have any card to play other than saying they were for morality, not for changing their regimes, which they thought could never work. So it was like a political strategy that denied that it was utopian or even political. And so maybe we can't really get out of laying out some kind of controversial vision for the future locally, globally. And my guess my trouble with human rights is that they've become really popular in this world where we've been more hesitant to do so and we've claimed not to do so while trying to advance our agendas even so. And it's somehow not working out too well or not well enough. But there could be debate. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who see the coming of nightmare scenarios and say, that's the last time to start calling for people to get rowdy again, as they were in the American and French Revolution or in the era of decolonization. And that's understandable. But, you know, usually it means they're privileged and rowdiness would more threaten them than give a lot of other people better chances than they have now. And I think in, in our memory, our historical memory, I think most people would take the notion of human rights and point to the immediate post-war period as the place where this concept really took root, right? In reaction to the Holocaust and also because of anti-colonial movements and civil rights movements in the United States. So why is it only partially accurate to point to that period as the wellspring of this new notion of human rights? I mean, that's what I thought, too. The 40s were where not just the bodies were buried, but the kind of big response in the form of human rights ideology and politics came. And because that was the kind of dominant narrative when I was young in the 1990s. And then I kind of looked into it and something didn't add up. So for one thing, I dismissed immediately that the Universal Declaration or Human Rights Discourse could have been a response to the Holocaust, which was like a very widespread idea in the 90s, because it didn't seem as if there was much evidence to support that idea. Actually, most historians think that Holocaust consciousness and concern took an incredibly long time, decades, to arise. And so like once you get to the 1970s with these dissidents and so forth, maybe the Holocaust memory matters then. But I think the 40s is too early to think that there was like an immediate response to the most horrible things Nazis did. Certainly people, you know, after the Nazis were beaten, all said we should never let that happen again. But they meant a lot of different things. Hitler's henchmen were tried at Nuremberg mainly for starting aggressive war not for their atrocities. And so a lot of people were against having 
another world war. And there were a lot of non-Jewish victims of totalitarian regimes, obviously, and they were more likely to survive. So they had their visions of the future. What struck me overwhelmingly is that when we look back at the 40s, people had experienced the Great Depression and the World War, and they wanted a fair society and kind of abundance without war. And maybe for some people, the Universal Declaration was about that. But I think other things were too, like the New Deal or the welfare state or in England, the National Health Service or other places like communist countries building socialism or the post-colonial world building socialism, which very often, even when they weren't communist, post-colonial leaders said they were for. So I began to see that actually the Universal Declaration in 1948, which certainly the UN passed, it's not nothing, was kind of a dud. And especially once the Cold War started, which was like right before the Universal Declaration, most people in the world understood that like they couldn't rest content with like gauzy morality, like in the Universal Declaration. The world was at in a war again over which hegemon to back or to try to be neutral. And there just wasn't a lot of mobilization around human rights. So it was kind of like neither nor there wasn't revolutions in the name of rights like in the you know American and French Revolution, and there wasn't the new human rights 2.0, kind of ordinary people lighting candles, writing letters, filing lawsuits in the name of human rights. And so it's like a period in between. So on decolonization, I think it you know allows us to make this point pretty neatly because it seems like the decolonizers around the world are like the last gasp of the American and French revolutionary model, human rights 1.0, if you want to call it that. What I mean by that is that they want their own freedom. They are trying to throw off what they see as despotism and empire, just like America did in 1776. And they pick up guns if they need to. And so it's the last gasp. You know, a lot of colonial powers in 1948 were among the 50-odd states that voted through the Universal Declaration. But within two decades, there were close to 200 states. And that wasn't caused by human rights. It was caused by revolutionary nationalism. And that's what kind of disappeared. And human rights has taken its place in the meantime. Now, the human rights movement, the modern human rights movement, seems to have been birthed in the ashes of disillusionment. And I think you point to 68, right, and the Prague Spring as a defining moment, right, which really forced a lot of people to rethink their previous political commitments. So can you kind of walk us through that process and some of the seminal figures there and how they reconceptualized their political activism? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got so many actors, but there are some kind of really important ones. I'd go back slightly first because you have the founding of Amnesty International in the early 60s, but it doesn't become famous really until the 70s when the organization wins the Nobel Peace Prize in 1977. And yet, even in its origins, the founders sort of say that, well, we see people becoming disillusioned with all the post-war utopias. And the founder, the main founder named Peter Benenson, actually straight out says, Amnesty International is for disillusioned socialists. Now, meanwhile, behind the Iron Curtain, socialists have been disappointed with communism since the Russian Revolution. So for five decades by that point, but they have always called for doing better with communism, reform communism, or what many called socialism with a human face. So they're not disillusioned yet. They're trying to update socialism. And yet the Prague Spring, I think, when the Soviets sent tanks in to crush a kind of attempt to have a better socialism, convinces people that it's not going to happen. The Soviets won't tolerate it. And so many of the earliest dissidents behind the Iron Curtain sort of have learned that lesson and they turn to morality because they don't see a way of beating communist regimes except by claiming not to oppose them. And they say, look, you yourself ratified this human rights treaty. You published it in Pravda. How can you not live up to it? And it sapped legit. Their goal was to sap legitimacy from 
a regime they didn't think they could overthrow or reform. Then you get another group of people, let's say in Latin America, about the same time, take Chile, Salvador Allende, basically attempting the same thing, socialism with a human face, democratic socialism. In this case, the Americans won't allow it and essentially connive to overthrow that project. It's like a mirroring thing. And I think a lot of Latin American activists say, well, we can't win in this hemisphere, especially once America starts backing authoritarian right-wing regimes, unless we appeal to some seemingly neutral moral principles. And so they begin to found human rights movements. Also, Roman Catholics are involved. So those are big events. And then I think you get a lot of other forces. I think Americans are really interesting in this story because they've supported Vietnam. The Democrats started the Cold War, Harry Truman. The Democrats started Vietnam, JFK and Lyndon Johnson. And they're just embarrassed after 1973-5. And they elect Jimmy Carter, who says, we need to atone we need to wash ourselves of our sins. And the way we're going to do it is by having a foreign policy based on human rights. Really first leading statesman who'd ever said so. The Universal Declaration didn't cause people to do it. Jimmy Carter did. And so you get a lot of people like across the North Atlantic who don't believe in socialism themselves, never did, don't any longer. They're cutting their hair after the 60s. They're growing up. And they join human rights as a kind of more modest cause, or they support politicians like Jimmy Carter, who say our states, the wealthy and powerful states, will export human rights rather than war. And so all of these things come together in a kind of like incredible, I think, big explosion. And human rights begins to be talked about really way, way more than anyone had ever talked about human rights ever. Now, I think there was sort of a Christian strand throughout this. I think some of the folks involved in Amnesty International were Quakers, and you talk a lot about the Catholic Church, and I'm guessing that a lot of the Catholic Church's involvement had to do with support for Catholic opposition within the Soviet bloc. But also, I mean, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical Christian. So were some of the roots onto which the human rights movement was grafted, did they have their origins in different strands of Christianity? For sure, really, and no matter how far back you go. I mentioned these medieval theologians. So somehow Christianity deserves credit for making possible the basic idea, and it didn't take off, but there's some connection there. And yet, it's pretty interesting that after the French Revolution, when the French do things like take all the church's lands, the idea of human rights got associated with secularism. In one of my books called Christian Human Rights, I look at how in the it was only in the 1940s, having kind of been burned by Christianity's tactical connivance with the far right, that Christians, Protestant and Catholics begin to say, no, we believe in human rights against state power. And this is interesting because secularists at that time are still dreaming of socialism, but it's Christians who say, no, we need to have these basic moral principles and Christianity stands for them, which is like a big reversal, especially for Catholics who'd responded to the French Revolution by saying modernity is terrible, human rights are relativistic and immoral and so forth. So that's some kind of big precedent. And then we get to the period you're asking about which is really significant because human rights are kind of involve coalitions. And in Eastern Europe, especially in a place like Poland, the church and the left both have different reasons for opposing communism. But the left, having been chastened by the Prague Spring, sort of says, well, we can't just mindlessly oppose the religious who could join us in morally criticizing this regime. So someone like Adam Michnik writes a famous book called The Church and the Left, saying we have to get along in order to be dissidents together. In certain places in Latin America, you see the same thing, where even people who had been far-left revolutionaries and are sent into exile by authoritarian regimes sort of say, we need more people. And if we have to join with the people spreading the opiate of the masses, Roman Catholicism, we'll do it because we'll have a bigger tent. And of course, then John Paul II is elected and 
uses human rights and helps make them famous because of his deep concern with communist depredations behind the Iron Curtain. And I think that's an absolutely essential contribution, too. So religion is really important all the way along. You mentioned Jimmy Carter's evangelical Christianity, and it's just hard to say because we know many evangelicals aren't liberals, don't embrace global human rights, but Carter did, and there's some connection. So we can't say that Christianity always leads to human rights. Often it leads to opposing human rights. But at various pivotal moments, there's a connection which we have to recognize. Now, I think you mentioned in the book there was a meeting of congressmen at some point where they said, you know, I'll oppose your bad guys if you oppose my bad guys. And so the idea of a foreign policy built on human rights is that it means that there's going to be some allies that you have to oppose as much as enemies. And I think in the 1970s with the Pinochet regime, I mean, this created some difficult decisions for American foreign policymakers. And I guess during the Reagan administration, it became more pronounced. Can you describe some of those tensions in American foreign policy and how we make sense of those? I mean, do we cherry pick our human rights violations? (laughs) Is it possible to have a human rights based foreign policy that doesn't distinguish between allies and enemies? Well, not so far, but, you know, it's not like an on or off switch. And I see this revolution in the 70s as leading to the struggles of our time where it's not like even-handedness ever materializes completely or therefore that charges of hypocrisy are impossible. But to be hypocritical, you have to have some moral norms. And I think before Vietnam, I think there was just no question that a kind of hard-bitten realism prevailed. I mean, there were big moral norms like freedom that we said we were propagating as Americans, but we would ourselves break a lot of eggs to make the omelet of freedom, and a lot of people died. And we supported a lot of unholy forces without a second thought. And I think what changes after the 70s is that it becomes possible to have this debate about means and ends and about compromises that soil us and maybe ought to be rethought. Now, that doesn't mean that like either side ever transcends hypocrisy, especially when they're politicians who are professional hypocrites. They have the regimes they favor because they're on the left or right and the ones they look away from. But What's significant to me, I guess, is that, you know, the debate shifts in a serious way. And the fact that someone like Gene Kirkpatrick, who became Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, has to develop this theory of how it's okay after 1980 and this human rights revolutions to support authoritarian regimes while bitterly condemning communist ones on the grounds that authoritarian ones will evolve into democracies, whereas totalitarian ones never will. It testifies to the fact that she had to come up with something, some argument for returning to like what Americans used to do, which was like support their allies. Now we still do I don't want to list any controversial examples, but Israel, Saudi Arabia, wherever. And right now, Joe Biden is hosting Narendra Modi, which is causing a lot of consternation among people who brand him a fascist. So I'm not taking sides, but it's just really interesting that those debates don't disappear. But in a way, they become possible in the first place because Jimmy Carter says we have to have a moral foreign policy and never just embrace our allies because friends are friends. Now, in terms of where this movement of human rights came from, partially it's academia, partially it's foreign policy circles, but you point to the role of some of these NGOs like Amnesty International, right? And there are others. Where did the intellectual movement gain its traction? Was it in these kind of NGO circles, the people who were sort of outside of the political system or Was it inside the political system that these ideas began to develop? Well, I think as in most cases, politicians don't lead, they follow. And you have a certain kind of social movement that arises. Now, there have been so many social movements in world history. So what interests me is looking at what kind is this, who's in it, who's not in it, what are they for, what are they not for? Because we can think of other social movements And this one, starting with amnesty, is very different. It's not for excessively controversial things like peace 
rather than war or socialism rather than capitalism. It says, at least can we get the powers that be states to adhere to just the elemental, decent principles like letting people talk and not throwing them into jail, not torturing them once they're there. Now today, ironically, human rights has expanded to include social provision and even more newfangled things than that. But in the origins, I think it consisted not of a mass movement by any means, but a kind of significant group, mostly of relatively well-off people across the North Atlantic, who see the world as a veil of tears. They think communism isn't going anywhere. Decolonization has gone south in a kind of moral sense. The world is now populated not by empires, but by homegrown despots. And America has tarnished itself too. The Cold War has made everyone look bad. And so I think these are people who are interested in like a pure cause where at least this cause won't do any damage. And like, this is amazing to me. I get the appeal of a cause where you would save the world one person at a time. That's what human rights activists said they were doing. But this same founder of Amnesty International says at one point to a friend, I actually don't care if my activist followers help people, because that's not the point of Amnesty International. It's to give people something pure to believe in again. And I just found that to be an amazing kind of testimony to where activists had been led and It hadn't been like that before. It's not like that now with Black Lives Matter or, frankly, mobilized movements on the right. These are very different. So we have to get at what's distinctive about becoming a human rights activist and helping make human rights famous. Now, what I find interesting is how international law has been transformed. International law, the way I always understood it, was about the relations between states and treaties and dispute resolution and so forth. But I think when most people think about international law now, they're thinking about international court of justice. They're thinking about going after bad actors and protecting minorities within countries and so forth. How did this transformation take place within the legal academy? Well, states began to respond to this pressure from mobilized groups below and make new kinds of treaties. The point of treaties is to advance the interests of the states that sign and ratify them. And most of those treaties that involve like commerce or standard setting, like let's use the metric system. In the middle of the 20th century, they were about peace, like the UN charter, let's not have another war. But at some point, you know, it wasn't good enough to have states be able to do anything to their populations and get no check. And amazingly, they were led to make these treaties that weren't about advancing their own interests as states. They were about exposing them to a look-in from the rest of the world to see how they were treating their own people. Now, let's be clear, when they ratified those treaties, very little followed, and that's why they did it. But it testifies to the kind of changing moral ambiance that they were forced even to lie. And of course, many unexpected things followed from these treaties. I think the main answer would be that international lawyers are just people, and they were affected by these big moral changes in the 1960s and 70s. So like most American lawyers had been for the Vietnam War in 1965 when it escalated. And by a decade or and a half later, they see the importance of having in an international law that advances human rights. And so the whole profession changes. But I think the main reason that is, is because different places in the world, it plays out differently. But a lot of people want states to obey these basic principles of decency in a way that they hadn't demanded before. And as a result, In the 90s, when I was young, you had a big pressure to have tribunals that would hold powerful people to account when they engage in atrocity. It's like the opposite of Nuremberg, although these tribunals, ultimately, our international criminal court often claim the legacy of Nuremberg because these tribunals are not about peace, keeping war from happening or punishing warmongers if they start them. 
Rather, they're about atrocity, what happens within war. And I think the only explanation of that development or reversal can be that like what we demanded of the powerful change, or at least significant mobilized elites demanded of their governments changed. Well, it seems to be pushback against sovereignty, though, right? So, I mean, the anti-colonial movements were all about national sovereignty and freeing the local governments from interference by the imperial powers. But this seems to be something which is, in some ways, a reassertion of that imperial power, isn't it? It is. I think the real debate is how far you take that, because I think it's undeniable that human rights activism emerged in the global north among people whose states engaged in imperial projects shortly before. One reason is that maybe they were atoning like Americans were after the Vietnam War or wanted to have a clean conscience. But there's no doubt that the idea of human rights was a strike against not so much or only sovereignty as a general idea, but third world sovereignty. Americans exiled tens of thousands of loyalists in 1776 when the revolutionaries won against the English and nobody set up the UN or said that that was a wrong thing according to international law. French Revolution got very bloody. No one founded human rights law. So it's only when these new peoples around the world achieved or seized sovereignty that there's these new demands for interfering with sovereignty. And that to me is shocking just because, again, Hitler didn't cause it. The number of sovereign states quadruples after Hitler. And yet in the 60s and 70s, I think people demand that there be checks. It's important also to add, though, that once you have these ideas, they're for all comers. And there were a lot of kind of creative things and justifiable things that people in the global South could now do. So you could put it the other way by saying, for all those years, African Americans couldn't appeal to international law to contest slavery or Jim Crow, but now citizens of third world states could. And so they were given a gift to be allowed to mobilize against their own states, which was a totally uplifting thing. So it's really just a new, in a sense, system. And does it have a kind of neo-imperial air? I think so, just because human rights activism is still dominantly funded out of northern capitals. And human rights can be excuses for our governments to invade their governments, never the other way around. But we shouldn't understate what these tools can do for all comers, especially when they don't have other kinds of recourse against their own governments. Now, in the book Liberalism Against Itself, you talk about these movements that are aimed at sort of putting checks on the state. And I think it's hard to argue that's a bad thing, but you can't argue that it's inadequate. So what is missing in the kind of post-war liberalism that you think ought to be there to provide people with something maybe a little more aspirational? Yeah, so this book is about just a narrow set of people, intellectuals in America and England in the 1940s little before and little after, and how they kind of rethink what liberalism should stand for. And as you say, they're minimalists. And they really say, we need to keep the state at bay. We now see the state can become fascistic or totalitarian. That's what we have to worry about. And the state can be cruel, and liberals should stand for keeping cruelty from mounting. And I think my concern about this is not that, of course, states don't make mistakes or cruelty is good or anything like that. It's that I'm wondering about the conditions for creating a good state, not just avoiding a bad one. And what if you have to create a good one in order to avoid a bad one? So if we stop the clock in the 1940s, when these thinkers like Isaiah Berlin and Karl Popper were kind of rethinking liberalism, they really don't say much in favor of the new welfare states that are actually being built in their own countries. And they come close in a way, although they're never identical with those economic liberals we call neoliberals, who have really defined the last 50 years by rolling back the state, calling for 
austerity and tax reductions on the wealthy. I mean, there are a lot of other aspects to the book, but the basic idea is like, why do we see so many people today, Donald Trump, et cetera, seeming to oppose liberalism itself, big intellectuals calling for post-liberalism? Well, maybe I wonder, is it because liberals decided to shy away from big promises on the grounds that they were dangerous or totalitarian in order to say, let's just stand for freedom against the state? So what if we could get a liberalism that said freedom depends on the right kind of state that helps create free institutions and makes life as a free person actually attainable through education and opportunity. And I wonder if we've lost that as a result of this kind of Cold War liberalism that became dominant in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, so it's sort of a anti-utopianism, right? They're anti-utopian. Like before the human rights movement, these Cold War liberals really think utopia is a recipe for terror. And it's just people didn't, in a sense, get the memo for a while. But in our time, I think we've kind of imbibed Cold War liberalism as our kind of second nature. Now, if you look at the kind of neoconservatives that were sort of the intellectual ammunition for the perpetual wars, right, that you talk about in Humane, it seems like they are sympathetic to the human rights message, right? I mean, the justification for the invasion of Iraq was all about the promotion of civil rights, human rights, democracy, and so forth. And yet, of course, you know, this was devastating and led to perhaps hundreds of thousands of deaths. How do we reconcile that? In the book Humane, I think you're making the case that we're concerned with making our wars humane, but this means we don't spend enough time <laughs> debating whether, you know, we should actually go to war or not. Does that mean that we're putting, you know, we talked about socialism with a human face. It's just all like war with a human face, right? We put a nice humane ribbon and a bow on the thing and then it makes it more attractive or less troublesome to our consciences. That's the basic argument of that book. You put it really well. There I'm trying to show something parallel to what we talked about before. Now it's not that like the anti-war movement dies and human rights takes its place, but within the domain of regulating war, the anti-war movement, like the concern with aggression at Nuremberg before, it gives way to projects of making war less brutal. Sometimes the same actors are involved, like the main human rights organization in the United States, really globally called Human Rights Watch, which emerges in the middle of the 1970s. In the 1980s and 90s commits, in addition to caring about free speech and torture and so forth, monitoring wars international wars, including America's wars, for whether they are too brutal, according to this particular body of international law. And so I worry that that left a legacy for our time with the war on terror far beyond the case of Iraq, which I'll get to in a second. Most of the debates about war in American public discourse have not been about whether to have it or continue it. They've been about whether there should be torture in the mix, whether there's too much torture, how people should be treated at Guantanamo or black sites, how many civilians is too many dying in drone strikes and other targeted killings. Now, I think things have changed slightly because presidents have had to get power by running against war. Barack Obama did. Even Donald Trump did. Joe Biden definitely did and withdrew from Afghanistan, although it's too soon to tell whether he's starting a new Cold War or following Trump and doing so against China. But the neocons are just a really interesting case across that whole period because they're generally very hostile to international law as a constraint on kind of America's duty to do good in the world as a kind of beneficent power. And when they get around to justifying that cause, they really think more in terms of democratic regimes, which they think they can support or build, even if it means starting with authoritarian regimes and coaxing them. Then they care about human rights, which had generally got associated with liberals and with people who wanted to denounce authoritarian regimes, especially those that the United States supported. Whereas the neocons said, we have to break some eggs to make an omelet ourselves. And 
if that means toppling some governments, if that means supporting authoritarians because the alternative is some left-wing regime, we will do that. And if people have to die, that's part of the cost of promoting democracy and freedom. So there, I would say their lexicon is different, but you're totally right that in 2002-03, when the Iraq war is coming into view, George W. Bush says things that sound like claims about human rights. Saddam has rape rooms and torture chambers. And among the long other reasons we have to intervene, that's intolerable. And so you're right that human rights come in and out of neoconservatism, but I would just say it's probably was never the main driver of the human rights revolution, which strikes me as a more liberal cause, mostly in the United States. Well, I remember in the Clinton administration with what happened in Rwanda and what happened in Sarajevo, I mean, there were people on the left who were very critical of the Clinton administration for failing to intervene, right, to prevent the Holocaust in both those places. And ultimately, it resulted in intervention in Kosovo and so forth. And so in the case of Kosovo, it was relatively uncomplicated, right? And I suppose if you could surgically intervene to protect people from brutality and oppression, then I don't think you'd find very many people who would oppose it. But the problem is it's not so easy, right, to surgically intervene like that. Is there now, do you think, a general consensus on both sides of the political spectrum that if, in fact, it is relatively painless and costless, that the United States government or UK or in France, there ought to be intervention? I mean, in France, the same conversation happened with Libya, and I think it was Bachel that was sort of at the forefront of Libyan intervention? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the evolution of the left has been remarkable because many of the people, especially Europeans who supported humanitarian intervention in the 90s, had themselves been part of the campaign against Vietnam and thought of themselves as pacifists and embraced what was famously in the 90s called military humanism. And I remember that very well because I worked as a White House intern during the Kosovo campaign. And everyone did believe that, like, the human rights militarism was a progressive cause. I think in a series of stages, we've gone back to the status quo ante. So there was always a kind of far right, very skeptical of these kinds of interventions is much more prominent now, I think, in American politics. But the left, I think, has regained some of its anti-war concern. And it's really as a result you know, and part of seeing the world a little bit differently and America's role in it a little bit differently, I think above all, it's due to just how these interventions have worked out. And we can debate Kosovo, which you're right, was uncomplicated relative to some others that followed. But when we look ahead to Libya, first, a lot of people, as you said, worry that there were humanitarian rationales offered for Iraq. And that kind of retroactively suggested that Kosovo was not perfect because it set up a pretext. Indeed, Vladimir Putin, the other month when he invaded Ukraine, cited Kosovo. If the West can do it, why not me? And then it wasn't just Iraq, but Libya, where there was a colorable case that there were some people who would die without intervention. But France and the United States basically took that as permission to engage in regime change. And I think everyone agrees made the situation much worse. So there's also been really interesting retrospectives on Rwanda suggesting that even had there been will to intervene, th there was not time to stop at least a large proportion of the 800,000 people cut to death by machete. So I think many people are in a different place because there just aren't the circumstances in which there can be a successful humanitarian intervention. We know that there's a need to challenge sovereignty and challenge those who are going to put their own people to death or situations in which some atrocity could occur, but no clear means of making the world a better place in opposing those things. And so concepts like the responsibility to protect, which was a kind of rebrand of the notion of humanitarian intervention, I think have lost their legitimacy as a result of Libya, especially. There can be some very surgical interventions like 
Obama ordered the protection of the Yazidi people when they were caught on this mountain, Sinjar, I think, and like they survived. And maybe there are some like very unique circumstances under which we can credibly say we know how to make the world better and not worse. But I think for a very long time, humanitarian intervention will be difficult to gain support for backing, mainly because I think statesmen across the North Atlantic states, women now too, are seeing backlash at some of the choices that elites have made for military deployment generally. I mean, if Donald Trump's election had any meaning, that's part of it. So I wonder if we'll see more humanitarian intervention. I wouldn't predict it anytime soon. Well, back in the 18th century, you could imagine people going out on the street and marching in favor of rights of man. This was an inspirational message that you could build an entire political movement on. Do you think that human rights can serve as the basis for a more inspiring political vision, or is it simply there for catastrophe prevention, as you say in the book? From what I can tell, you know, human rights can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I wouldn't rule out that there could be some movement that says it's a human rights movement that sets the world on fire. And after all, I'm claiming that human rights 1.0, revolutionary human rights did so. But if we take that for granted, then we have to ask, is the current version of the idea of human rights and the movement associated with it going to have that same effect without being radically reimagined? And I think the answer is no. And especially if we care more than ever about distribution of the good things in life, the movements have made a big difference are things like trade unions and socialist parties. America has never really had socialist party, maybe briefly in the early 20th century. But our trade unions, which were central to at least what Franklin Roosevelt brought and what the post-World War II era was about, are living in hard times even as human rights organizations became very prominent and influential. So my sense is that it doesn't much matter what we call it, but I'm the holding out for more transformative movements and ones that are likely to be more divisive. And that makes me think that they're not going to be able to appeal as easily to ideas like human rights, which sound as if everyone's supposed to already agree with them. But, you know, if we want to change the world, that's going to involve some enemies taking out the aggressors, finding a way to contain them, targeting the rich if we think that's important, and they're going to fight back. So human rights, are they enough to kind of recover from the associations the idea has had lately? I kind of doubt it, but you never know. Well, I want to end where we started. You quoted Croce, who said, all history is contemporary history. And you also quote Mark Bloch, right? You talk about he's, I guess you're paraphrasing him, but you're saying a lot of historians ransack the past in order to provide some kind of origin story for where we are in the present. There's been a lot of controversy over what's called presentism, right? The head of the American Historical Association wrote an essay about this. What do you consider your job as an historian? You're certainly engaged in the current world and you have strong positions on the current world and current politics, but what is the job of the historian? Is the job of the historian to in part help move things forward in the present or is it to correct misunderstandings about the past or both? No, it's a fantastic question. And there are so many interesting arguments that continue around this problem of the historian's professional role or public role. And I think we can set aside what the AHA president said, because I think when he rejected presentism, I think part of it had to do with a good faith concern with just studying the recent times as someone who studied the early modern period. But I think he also channeled some of the inherited sense that, that most historians get when they start that they should, in a sense, pose as authoritative and neutral. And I think there he probably went wrong, just because as far as I can see, lying is bad, making stuff up is bad, but there's no true truth about the past. There are only different ways to present it. 
I think historians can play a really powerful and useful role in sort of challenging dominant narratives, especially when they leave a lot out. And I've tried to do that in my work, not because I know what we should do, but because I wanted to disrupt a consensus that has been earned through historical myth. And once that kind of myth is cleared away or less distortion, it's rarely lies. It would be a lot easier if we could just say, you know, our enemies are lying. But it's clear that history is a war in politics, and there's no way to free history from politics, although hopefully we can have some conventions that keep our stories, you know, at least from just outright propaganda. And so it's a complex question you ask, and my answer has to be complex. But essentially, I think historians are people too, just like international lawyers, I said before. So that means they're citizens, they're humans, they have a dog in the fight. And we should always recognize that and make use of it as historians and readers of history. Well, I think it was Hobsbawm who coined the phrase, the invention of tradition. Yeah, yeah. He and a, another man, Terrence Rainser, who kind of edited a collection about how across the world people have made up traditions to support pretty recent things. And part of what I think what you're trying to show in your books is that we do this all the time, right? We try to go back and reconstruct the past to show this narrative that where we are today is inevitable. Why do you suppose we need that? What's wrong with just saying, hey, this is a break from the past? This is new. I think it's a great question. And I go back to existentialism, which is that freedom is very hard to see ourselves as exercising. It would be much better if someone solved our problems beforehand. And so even though we can't shirk responsibility for making our own choices, we like to pretend that someone nudged us in the right direction and that history guided us. And in that way, you know, history can be an easy surrogate for the idea that like there's a divine out there to tell us what to do or dad giving us advice. And so I've tried to think about history in a different way, trying to make us see that we actually have to not just make our own choices, but embrace that we're responsible for them and we can go other ways. And then we a lot depends on what stakes we see in creating our future rather than just inheriting something that somebody allegedly decided a long time ago. Well, Sam, thanks so much for joining me. The books are, we've got The Last Utopia, Human Rights and the Uses of History, Humane, How the U.S. Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, and the new book coming out, Liberalism Against Itself. Hope to talk again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.